Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagani Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 29th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This has been a very busy summer for us, and I have hardly been home to do much in-depth study or writing. Not that I have regrets, as I think that at least sometimes I must balance my work with real-world activities, and I cannot do it all at once. We have recently moved our dear friend and longtime fellow worker, Clifton Emmerheiser, to our home in Florida, and we can indeed attest that real-world activities are often important enough to put a ministry on hold for a few weeks or even longer when the need arises. So whether it's for a casual walk through downtown Charlottesville, or for the help of a dear friend in need, there are times when we have to step away from the keyboard. But it is good to be back to finish our presentations of the epistles of Paul of Tarsus, and we praise Yahweh for that. This will be the 114th podcast in the series, and there will be several more before we bring it to completion. I would have never imagined that it would have over a hundred segments. During the course of this summer, PayPal canceled our account on May 31st. Then on September 2nd, Spreadshirt canceled half of our designs because they allegedly encouraged racial hatred towards an unnamed ethnic group. But they did not cancel our account. We are going to stop using them soon. Sometime over the summer, Facebook canceled the account we used for Facebook apps tied to the Christiania Forum. This was done without notice or warning, and it was a while before we even discovered it. Now, just this past week, Lulu.com canceled our account and removed our books from their listings. So, Christreich and the Christiania New Testament are not currently available in hard copy. This was also done without warning, and we did not receive any notice until after our account was completely deleted. So now we are looking for another print-on-demand publisher. But as our friends in the League of the South have often stated, we are not going to be silent so that our enemies can be comfortable. Our message is going to be heard in the public square, one way or another. Soon we shall move all of our t-shirt designs to Sunnet Shirts, a business run by one of our own, And we are looking already for other ways to publish our books. Until we transition to new vendors, we will leave the current advertisements for our books and other items in place as a testimony against the companies that have suppressed our message. This is one area where the right has failed. If I had a store and refused to do business with a sodomite, the degenerate would file a lawsuit and, at least in most places, probably succeed in closing my business. But any company can refuse to do business with me 
and never risk a penalty. Why has the rite failed? Because piety is persecuted by all worldly tyrants, and we truly live in a state of tyranny. The tyranny is controlled by the same people who control nearly all banks and corporations, and therefore the corporations do their bidding without question. Controlling corporations, they also control government and media. So while we are allowed a pretext of freedom, that freedom is limited. And when we transgress the limitations, the tyranny finds an excuse to violate that pretext. So in reality, the right has failed because it continues to seek political solutions where there are none. And the petition for relief in courts that will not provide relief. But more importantly, the right has failed by spending its money with the corporations that hate it, rather than fostering and supporting its own businesses and building its own resources. Every day there are fewer places left to turn, because all corporations are left. In the end, the only solution is the final solution, which is inevitable because it is described in Revelation chapter 19. In the meantime, we will do what we can to keep our message in the public, in the eyes of the public, or accessible to the general public. We will do everything we can. This presentation is of Paul's first epistle to Timothy. It's part six in our series on 1 Timothy, and it's subtitled, Exercise for Piety. We have already discussed the first five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4 at length. In the last segment of our presentation of this epistle, in part five of this series, which was subtitled, Rome, Pagan and Catholic, because much time has elapsed since we made that presentation, and because, as we proceed here in verse 6, we see that Paul refers back to what he had said in those first five verses. We will read those verses once again and summarize a few of the statements we had made concerning them. In the opening verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul wrote, Now the Spirit specifically states that in a later time some will withdraw from the faith, cleaving to wandering spirits and teachings of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, their own consciences having been branded with iron, forbidding to marry, to abstain from foods, things which Yahweh has established for participation with gratitude for those with faith and knowledge of the truth. Discussing these statements in Rome, Pagan and Catholic, we cited many of the earliest surviving Christian writers to establish the fact that these heresies began to manifest themselves amongst the Christian assemblies as early as the second century of the Christian era. We also hope to have established that these heresies were brought into Christianity to one degree or another from the ancient pagan sects, and that the Roman Catholic Church had adopted these various pagan practices 
as the institution itself was developing. It continues to cleave to them under this very day. So the Roman Church forbid its priests to marry, and for many generations it has attracted the basest sort of men into its numbers. And in turn, it is these base men who have guided church policy for many centuries. We have also explained that Christ himself had made similar but more general warnings in the Gospels, especially in what is known as the Olivet Discourse, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke chapter 21. There, among other things, he said, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So Paul is most likely referring to Christ as the Spirit here. And this is verified in part in the epistle of Jude, where that apostle wrote, But beloved, remember, ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord, Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. So we see Jude has a slightly different perspective on the same words that were recorded in the Olivet Discourse. And while Jude attributes those words to Jesus Christ, Paul of Tarsus simply attributed them here to the Spirit, but they should be considered one and the same since in John chapter 14, Christ professed that he was indeed that spirit which would be sent after his own passing. He was the comforter. He said, I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you. So he is one and the same with that Holy Spirit. So Paul can very easily refer to him as the spirit here, his body being the physical manifestation of the spirit of God. In regard to this, we also explain that phrases such as the last time or later times are Hebraisms which simply refer to the future which is evident in places such as Genesis chapter 49 verse 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 where Paul wrote that Yahweh has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son and also in 1 John chapter 2 where John had written little children it is the last time and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come even now there are many Antichrists speaking of the Jews, whereby we know that it is the last time. However, it is also apparent that the apostles did not know just how long this last time was actually going to, to last. Neither does the fulfillment of Paul's words here infer that the institution of the Roman Catholic Church over the Christian assemblies of Europe was ever legitimate in the first place. Legitimate meaning godly. 
it may have been from God, but that was for the punishment of the children of Israel, not for their edification. However, for many centuries, even though the Roman Catholic Church was part of the punishment of the children of Israel, as we see in Daniel and the Revelation, for many centuries, its leadership was the de facto ecclesiastical leadership in Europe, whether it was legitimate or godly or not. And the example of leadership, which they made in the name of Christ, is entirely contrary to the Christian gospel. Where Paul says that these men would be forbidding to marry, to abstain from foods, things which Yahweh has established for participation, with gratitude for those with faith and knowledge of the truth. He is merely saying that they would depart from the laws of Yahweh and impose their own laws. The church has indeed codified many things which are contrary to God's law, which Paul alludes to here, such as the demands that people abstain from particular foods at diverse times. The demand, for instance, to abstain from meat during Lent, when they really have no command to abstain from leaven during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the church made its own law. Things which Christ may have said are teaching for doctrines the commandments of men as it is recorded that he had told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 7. But in our opinion, the most significant part of Paul's statements here is where, writing this letter to Timothy, as he departs from Ephesus in 56 AD, he says that in later times, some will withdraw from the faith. With this, we had asked, how was he even confident that there would be so many within the faith in the later times that the withdrawal of some should even be significant? As Paul wrote these words, the world was overwhelmingly pagan and paganism was enforced by the state. This is evident in the words of a pair of Roman men recorded in Acts chapter 16 who complained about the teachings of Paul in Philippi. And Luke records that they brought them, meaning Paul and Silas, they brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Judeans, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. In such an overwhelmingly pagan world, it would not even be of consequence if some withdrew from the faith. The hurdles which Christianity would have to overcome to become the dominant religious paradigm in ancient society are also illustrated where Paul visited and preached in Athens later that same year. And it is recorded in Acts chapter 17 
that therefore disputed he, meaning Paul, in the synagogue with the Judeans, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily, he met with them that met with him. He disputed with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Another some, He seems to be a center forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And of course the Epicureans and the Stoics were sects which held beliefs that were nevertheless considered to be within the acceptable bounds of state-enforced Roman paganism, much like the Baptists and Pentecostals of today teach a powerless and watered-down version of Christianity which is acceptable to the American Empire and which is also enforced by the state. A little later in the chapter, when Paul was about to make a defense of Christianity at the Areopagus, we read, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then, after Paul made his defense, Luke wrote, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. They mocked, even though the stories of resurrection from the dead were extant in their own pagan literature. Eventually, Paul was arrested for his heresy and sent to Rome. Following his arrest, the records of Luke in the closing chapters of the book of Acts indicate that he lived until no later than 62 or perhaps 63 AD, where he was apparently executed in the time of the Emperor Nero. However, only 50 years after the death of Paul, we see that in some places in the empire, Christianity had already spread to the point where it had threatened the survival of the state-sponsored and state-enforced paganism. In 111 AD, the emperor Trajan sent Pliny the Younger to Bithynia to extinguish the Christian heresy. Pliny wrote several reports back to the emperor, and the exchange of letters is preserved unto us unto this day. In one such letter, Pliny had written in summary of the growth of the Christian heresy, and he said, For many of all ages, all classes, all classes, and both sexes already are brought into danger and shall be in the future. And not only the cities, the contagion of this superstition is spread throughout the villages and the countryside. But it appears to me possible to stop it and put it right. Certainly, the temples which were once deserted are beginning to be crowded and the long-interrupted sacred rites are being revived, while food from the sacrifices is selling, for which, up to now, a buyer was hardly to be found. So the temples and pagan rites had been disregarded 
But when Pliny wrote, they were being used once again, because Pliny had the power of the state behind him, and he was torturing Christians into disclaiming their faith, or executing them if they refused to disclaim it. Therefore we see that only 80 years after the Passion of the Christ, there was such a voluntary acceptance of Christianity among the Greeks and Romans of Bithynia that the pagan temples and rites had fallen almost completely idle. The voluntary acceptance of a new religion by, a, by such a large segment of the people is not something that happens often or without enticement. But what was the reward for accepting Christianity outside of persecution? Without a plethora of witnesses to the gospel, the spread of the new creed would not have been possible. But even more importantly, the Christianity which Paul and the other apostles had taught was indeed grounded in the ancient history and the customs of the people to whom they had brought the gospel. And without the appropriate cultural and historical background, the new creed would never have been accepted. An examination of ancient history clearly does show that Paul was bringing the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But Christians today do not understand that because, for fear of the Jews, such ancient history is no longer properly taught. It has not been properly taught since the days of Paul of Tarsus. On a contemporary note, our Christian predicament today is much like it was when Paul was executed. But we also can overcome by upholding the truth and appealing to the people on those same traditional cultural grounds upon which the original apostles of Christ had stood. In spite of the many early persecutions of Christians, Christianity could not be oppressed. So after three centuries of failure, finally Rome relented and accepted the new creed. But as a result, Christianity was quickly corrupted into a form which the empire could tolerate. A form which accommodated the professional priesthood. The final product was the corrupt Roman Catholic Church. And now, all of the splinter, splinter organizations that had been spawned from that church. None of the modern churches are truly Christian, and therefore the tyranny licenses their operation. True Christianity survives, however, while we must struggle to be heard. In the subsequent verses of this chapter, Paul then continues with a reason for his opening statements where he said, Because every establishment of Yahweh is good, and nothing to be rejected, being received with gratitude. For it is sanctified through the word of Yahweh and intercession. And here we have properly translated the Greek words katizo and katisma as establish and establishment the verb and the noun. 
Here Paul informs us that the things which Yahweh established for such purposes are explained in the law, and they are the establishments to which Paul refers here. The proof of that is where he wrote that it is sanctified through word of Yahweh and intercession. Intercession being requested through prayer. Prayer is important, but prayer alone is not sufficient for sanctification. The word of Yahweh is in the law. So both the law of Yahweh and prayer for intercession are required for sanctification. If something is excluded by the laws of Yahweh, it cannot be sanctified, and one should not pray for it in vain. Swine and shellfish are examples of such things, which are not among the establishments in the law. So they can't be prayed for. There's no intercession. They can't be sanctified. Fornication or race mixing is not among the establishments of the law, which insists that a man's wife be kind after kind, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Intercession may bring us forgiveness for our sins, but our sin is still sin and a failure to repent results in punishment. Instead, as we hope to illustrate here in the balance of this chapter, Christians must exercise themselves for piety by keeping the law. Now we shall proceed where we had left off in our last segment in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul makes a conclusion and tells his yellow fellow worker that presenting these things to the brethren, you will be a good minister of Christ Yahshua, being reared in the words of the faith and the good teaching in which you have closely followed. And here Paul refers not only to the things which he has said in the opening verses of this chapter, for there were no chapter divisions in the original epistle. Rather, by these things... He refers to everything which he has said thus far in his epistle. Paul expects Timothy to teach all of the things he has written here to the assemblies in Ephesus, where Paul had left him as he departed from Macedonia, as he told Timothy at the very beginning of this epistle, just as I, traveling into Macedonia, had summoned you to remain in Ephesus, that you should command some not to teach errors. Here we see that Paul desired for Timothy to teach those same Ephesians all of these other things that he has discussed, which includes what he had said about the nature of God in Christ, the role of women in the community, leadership credentials for bishops and ministers, and the mysteries of the faith, and the uh, and of godliness. I'm sorry, the mystery of the faith and the mystery of godliness. Mysteries which should certainly no longer be mysteries to Christians, 
because Paul had explained them and expected Timothy to teach them. Now Paul continues with an admonition which is often abused, where he says, But dismiss those profane and old wives' tales, and exercise yourself for piety. Here the King James Version ignores the definite article, which in the Greek manuscripts precedes the clause that is translated here as profane and old wives' tales. Many other translations put a period after the clause, as if the exhortation to exercise for piety is somehow unrelated to the command to avoid certain tales. Commentators often take this verse or the segments of this verse entirely out of context and assign their own old wives' tales to Paul's intentions. Indeed, the presence of the definite article indicates that Paul was referring to certain profane and old wives' tales, and therefore the article is translated here as those. As Joseph Thayer wrote in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, on page 434, page 434 under the entry for the definite article, Ho. The Greeks employed the article where we abstain from its use before nouns denoting things that pertain to him who is the subject of the discourse. So here, those profane and old wives' tales refer to whatever is the subject of the discourse. In the ninth edition of their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott supply similar examples where the definite article is used to refer to persons or things which had already been referred to explicitly in the first part of their definition of the definite article, which shows that it was frequently employed as a demonstrative pronoun and is often translated as that or those. So we have translated it as those here because it refers to specific old wives' tales. tales. So we would assert that the certain old wives' tales to which Paul refers to as those using the definite article are a further reference to those things which he has already described earlier in a chapter as being the teachings of wandering spirits and demons which cause men to do such things as forbidding to marry and to abstain from foods. In other words, Paul's old wives' tales are the beliefs of the pagan religions as opposed to the word of God as we have already shown that such things were introduced into Christian assemblies from the ancient pagan religious cults. That's what Paul is considering as old wives' tales here. We must also note that both of the verbs of this clause are in the imperative mood. So if we were to make a more emphatic translation, Paul tells Timothy that he must 
dismiss such tales, and that he must exercise himself for piety. Stressing the imperatives, the verse may be read, but you must dismiss those profane and old wives' tales, and you must exercise yourself for piety. Now Paul uses a sort of solemn pun, employing the word gumnazo, Strong's number 1128, which is the source of our words gymnastics and gymnasium, and which is literally to train naked, to train in gymnastic exercise, and generally to train or to exercise, according to Liddell and Scott. Of course, one does not have to be naked to exercise oneself for piety. So in that sense, the word is used allegorically. Now Paul uses it again in comparison in the verse which follows. And actually, gumnazo is to train naked because the Greek word gumnus, Strong's number 1131, means naked. That's the word, that, that's the adjective that gumnazo is rooted in. Some pronunciations may try to pronounce the upsilon as we pronounce the modern letter Y as a vowel, which is really like a short I. I don't believe that the upsilon was pronounced in that manner. I would rather pronounce it like a short U. Gumnus or Gumnazo. Now Paul uses that word Gumnazo again in a comparison in a verse which follows, and he says, Bodily exercise is for little advantage, but piety is for every advantage, having a promise of life for the present and for the future. In his second epistle, Peter uses the term Gumnazo of the wicked. The cursed children who are naturally exercised with covetous practices. But in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, Paul declares, using the same verb, And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience <clears throat> void of offense toward God and towards men. Likewise, in chapter 5 of his epistle to the Hebrews, he says that strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Strong meat, in that case, being an allegory for the strong truths found in Scripture. Paul describes such exercise for piety again in his first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 9 where he says and every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown they meaning the people who strive in worldly games but we an incorruptible an incorruptible crown, we who strive to please Yahweh our God. I therefore, 
so run, not as uncertainly. So I fight, not as one that beats the air. But I keep, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So evidently, Paul's exercise for piety trained his body to be subject to the laws of Yahweh. The Greeks admired men who spent long hours training in the gymnasiums, perfecting the shape of their bodies and the size and tone of their muscles, attaining to endurance and physical strength. This went well beyond the mere desire to stay fit, and itself becomes a form of idolatry when one devotes all of one's idle time to beauty and physical perfection. Then age and sickness or some physical trial can take it all away in a brief time, and one's beauty and strength fade as the flower of grass. As the Apostle Peter tells us in his first epistle, where he is in turn citing Isaiah chapter 40. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of Yahweh endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The word of Yahweh enduring forever Paul's admonition to men is not to seek physical perfection, but rather to perfect the eternal spirit by exercising oneself for piety through training one's body for subjection to the laws of Yahweh. Bodily exercise does profit, but it profits little. A man who is trained for piety is trained for eternity. As Paul says here, that piety is for every advantage, having a promise of life for the present and for the future. The fourth book of Maccabees was an early and ostensibly Christian work, which extolled pre-Christian martyrs who lived in the days of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, a Seleucid king who antagonized and persecuted law-keeping Judeans in the middle of the second century before Christ. According to accounts in the historical 2 Maccabees, or 2nd Book of Maccabees, in chapters 6 and 7, the high priest Eleazar, and then a woman with seven sons, were all put to death rather than violate the precepts of their faith by eating swine's flesh. The morale of this story is that an exercise for piety trains men to overcome the trials of this world in favor of obedience to God. All nine people lose their lives, but they never lose their virtue and for that they were seen as overcomers of the carnal world. To illustrate this, here we shall read the 13th chapter of 4 Maccabees.
If then these seven brethren despised troubles even unto death, it is confessed on all sides that righteous reasoning is absolute master over the passions, and it will explain righteous reasoning in the verses to come. For just as if, had they as slaves to the passions eaten of the unholy, we should have said that they had been conquered by them. Now it is not so, but by means of the reasoning which is praised by God, righteous reasoning, they mastered their passions, and it is impossible to overlook the leadership of reflection, for it gained the victory over both passions and troubles. How then can we avoid, according to these men, mastery of passion through right reasoning, since they drew not back from the pains of fire? For just as by means of towers, projecting in front of harbors, men break the threatening waves, and thus assure a still course to vessels entering port, so that seven-towered right reasoning of the young man securing the harbor of religion or piety and I will discuss that later conquered the intemperance of passions for having arranged a holy choir of piety they encouraged one another saying brothers may we die brotherly for the law let us imitate the three young men in Assyria who despised the equally afflicting furnace, referring to an account in Daniel. Let us not be cowards in the manifestation of piety. And one said, Courage, brother. And another, Nobody endure. And another, Remember of what stock you are, and by the hand of what Father Isaac endured to be slain for the sake of piety. And one and all, looking on each other serene and confident, they said, Let us sacrifice with all our heart, our souls, to God who gave them, and employ our bodies for the keeping of the law. Let us not fear him who thinks that he kills. For great is the trial of soul and danger, of eternal torment laid up for those who transgress the commandment of God. Let us arm ourselves, therefore, in the abnegation of the divine reasoning, not to deva- not abnegation to denounce or renounce divine reasoning, but to renounce what the divine reasoning, which is in the law, compels us to renounce. If we suffer thus, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will receive us, and all the fathers will commend us. And, as each one of the brethren was held away, the rest exclaimed, Disgrace us not, O brother, nor falsify those who died before you. Now you are not ignorant of the charm of brotherhood, which the divine and all-wise providence has imparted through fathers to children, and has engendered through the mother's womb, in which these brothers, having remained an equal time, and having been formed for the same period, had been increased by the same blood, 
and having been perfected through the same principle of life, and having been brought forth at equal intervals, and having sucked milk from the same fountains. Hence their brotherly souls are reared up lovingly together and increased the more powerfully by reason of this simultaneous rearing and by daily intercourse and by other education and exercise in the law of God. This is the exercise for piety. Brotherly love, verse 23 of the chapter, brotherly love being thus sympathetically constituted, the seven brethren had a more sympathetic mutual harmony, for being educated in the same law and practicing the same virtues, and reared up in a just course of life, they increased this harmony with each other, for a like order for what is right and honorable increased their fellow feeling towards each other, for it, acting along with religion or piety, made their brotherly feeling more desirable to them. And yet, although the nature and intercourse and virtuous morals increased their brotherly love, those who were left endured to behold their brethren, who were ill-used for their religion or piety, tortured even unto death. And first we must note that the word religion in these verses is an unfortunate translation by Brenton. The word Eusebia is properly piety, and it is the same word which we translate as piety in verses 7 and 8 here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where the King James Version has godliness. So here in 4 Maccabees chapter 13, we see, an ex- we see the expression of several precepts which we also see in similar language in the letters of Paul and in the Gospel and in the letters of John. Not to fear those who may kill the body, but to fear Yahweh God and keep His law, and to exercise oneself in piety by exercising oneself to keep that law. The end of that exercise results not only in the expression of true piety, but in the expression of true brotherly love, which is found in a mutual agreement with and keeping of the law, of which the final product is absolute harmony amongst brethren. Finally, through these things... Christians may overcome all trials. These trials of Eleazar and the woman with the seven brothers are not unique and neither are the attitudes expressed as they are also witnessed in the book of Daniel. For instance, in the trial of Daniel and his companions in the furnace which was referred to here in this chapter of 4 Maccabees or when Daniel was given over to be eaten by lions. And on each occasion, he prevailed through obedience to Yahweh. Many similar trials are found in the life and psalms of David, 
and David also prevailed through faith. Through magnifying and contemplating the law, and through seeking the will of his God. So piety does not come from rituals. Piety does not come from baptisms. Piety does not come from attendance in some organized state-approved church. Rather, true piety comes in a willingness to keep the laws of Yahweh our God and training our bodies to be subject to those laws. Now Paul concludes by saying trustworthy is this saying and worthy of all acceptance. And this statement and similar ones appear in Paul's letters only in the epistles written to Timothy and Titus. In 1 Timothy chapters 1, 3, and 4, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and Titus chapter 3. As we had commented when encountering it earlier in this epistle, it is sometimes difficult whether by this, by saying this, Paul means to refer to what had already been written or to what follows. Here we esteem it to be referring to what follows, where Paul continues and he says, For this we toil and struggle, because we have trusted in Yahweh who lives, who is the Savior of all most believing men. And the Codex Beze, the codex known as 0241, which I believe is from the 6th century, and the majority text have, for this we toil and suffer reproach. We have, for this we toil and struggle, following the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Claromontan, I'm sorry, Ephraim Siri, the codex Ephraim Siri, which is from the 6th century. And usually the codex Ephraim Siri is very close to the Codex Beze and the Codex Claromontanus. They are divided in the reading with this word. I just thought I'd note that because that doesn't happen very often. Ostensibly speaking of the men of the Oikumene, to those of the family of the faith, as Paul refers to them in Galatians chapter 6, those who were promised salvation throughout the Old Testament, which we see in Isaiah chapter 43, 45, Jeremiah 14, the promises of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, and even in Acts chapters 5 and 13 and 26. So he's only speaking where he says all men, or almost believing men. He's only speaking within the context of the promises of the New Testament. Speaking to them, Paul made a similar statement in Titus chapter 2. For the delivering favor of Yahweh has been displayed to all men, teaching us that, rejecting impiety and the lusts of this society, discreetly and righteously and piously, we should live in this present age, expecting the blessed hope and manifestation of the honor of the great Yahweh, 
even our Savior Yahshua Christ, who gave himself over in behalf of us in order that he would redeem us from all lawlessness and may purify for himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We would conclude that all most believing men are the men of the house of Israel most likely to keep the laws of Yahweh and through that they should find preservation in this life as well as that which is to come. So, as Paul declared to Titus, we become purified by keeping the law. Christ came to redeem us from lawlessness. And here he explains that we must exercise ourselves for piety by training our bodies to keep the law, which in turn distinguishes us as the children of God, as his peculiar people. Only we have the law written on our hearts. We may already be children of Yahweh genetically, as our first father Adam was the son of Yahweh in spite of his sin. But Yahweh desires for us to act as his children should act, as Christ admonishes us and says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Furthermore, we demonstrate our love for one another by keeping the law. And by that we also demonstrate our love for God. In Joshua chapter 22, there is an admonition to take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, charged you, to love Yahweh your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Likewise, nothing's changed in the New Testament. Likewise, we read in the first epistle of John that if one should say that I love Yahweh and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he not loving his brother whom he has seen, he is not able to love Yahweh whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him that he loving Yahweh also loves his brother. Each believing that Yahshua is the Christ has been born from of Yahweh, and each loving he who engendered loves he having been engendered by him, meaning that if you love God, you'll love all of his children. By this we know that we should love the children of Yahweh. When we would love Yahweh, and we would keep his commandments. For this is the love of Yahweh, that we should keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So we learned from John what we also saw in 4 Maccabees, that love for one's brother is expressed through keeping the laws of Yahweh our God. Paul admonishes Timothy once again and he says, You transmit and you teach these things. And once again, Paul expects Timothy to teach 
these things to the Ephesians, while also overcoming other hurdles he may have in Ephesus, where he further says, Let no man despise your youth, but you must be a model of those believing in word, in conduct, in love, in faith, in chastity. And the majority text interpolates the words in spirit before in chastity. Something which none of the great uncial codices have. Being a youth in this sense, let no man despise your youth. Being a youth in this sense does not necessarily mean that Timothy was under the customary age for a man who would serve in a capacity as priest or in service to the congregation, which was 30 years, which is evident in Numbers chapter 4. And in the in the start of the ministry of Christ, who was about 30 years old, as Luke attests. In fact, Paul himself was referred to as a young man, a Neanius, Strong's number 3494, in Acts chapter 7. However, the rulers of the temple in Jerusalem saw him, still saw him fit for the administration of persecuting the heretical sect of Christians in Damascus and beyond. But even being a young man in his thirties, Timothy may still be despised as a teacher by the elder and supposedly more learned men found ruling in the synagogues at Ephesus and elsewhere where Paul advises Timothy to overcome any possible criticisms by being a model example in his conduct. Paul expects that Timothy will be successful in this endeavor as he exhorts him further and says, Until I come, you attend to the reading, the exhortation, the teaching, or as the King James has it, the doctrine. As we have discussed at length in earlier portions of this presentation and in our commentary on the epistle to Titus, here Paul had written to Timothy from Macedonia in 56 AD, expecting the apostle to remain in Ephesus until the time when Paul could return there. But even with this strong admonition, and for some unknown reason, Timothy did not remain in Ephesus. Instead, just a few months later, he is found with Paul, when Paul was with both Timothy and Titus in Nicopolis, in Epirus in Greece, where he spent the winter of 56 and 57 AD, and during which he wrote the second epistle to the Corinthians. No mention is made in Second Corinthians or in any of Paul's later epistles explaining why Timothy may have departed from Ephesus contrary to Paul's telling him to remain there only a short time before. We can only imagine that Timothy must have been compelled to leave for one serious reason or another. From the time that he is found with Paul in Nicopolis, when 2 Corinthians is written, Timothy remained with him 
as he traveled through Achaia and Macedonia and returned to the Troad, which we see in the opening verses of Acts chapter 20. Then, as the group gathered in the Troad had traveled to Palestine, they stopped in Miletus and summoned the elders of the assemblies of Ephesus to meet them there, where Paul then addressed them, as it is recorded later in Acts chapter 20. Ostensibly, as we had demonstrated in our commentary on Hebrews chapter 13, Timothy then remained with Paul and was arrested with him in Jerusalem in 57 AD. But as Paul had announced in that epistle to the Hebrews, Timothy was released before Paul was sent to to Rome. Here, after encouraging him to continue teaching in Ephesus, something which he doesn't do for very long, Paul continues to offer him even greater encouragement, where he says in verse 14, Do not have neglect for the favor within you, which was given to you through the interpretation of Scripture, along with the laying on of hands of the council of elders. So the ministry of the gospel was granted to Timothy through the the interpretation of scripture, as well as the laying on of hands of the council of elders. The Codex Sinaiticus has only of an elder rather than of the council of elders. The later must have happened sometime during Paul's travels with Timothy, as they are described in Acts chapters 16 and 17, although the concise nature of the accounts makes it difficult to determine exactly. But for the ministry to be granted to Timothy through the interpretation of Scripture, Paul must be alluding to those prophecies concerning the spread of the gospel through the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as Timothy's father was a Greek. Speaking of the scattered children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 43, in a messianic prophecy the word of Yahweh says, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up. And to the south, keep not back, bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is, meaning already by the time Isaiah wrote, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him, meaning by the time Isaiah wrote, for my glory, I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people, they're already blind by the time Isaiah wrote, the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this, and show us the former things? Meaning that the history of the ancient people of Israel is important. Let them bring forth their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, It is truth. Ye are my witnesses, Yahweh speaking to the children of Israel. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. 
Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared, and have saved, and have showed, meaning that all these things concerning Yahweh and what he declared to save are already mentioned in scripture because he declared it already. When there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God, meaning that all this is only for the children of Israel. In another messianic prophecy, which Christ himself had cited concerning his own purpose in Luke chapter 4, we read concerning the scattered children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 42, I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the prisoner from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And in yet another prophecy of the Gospel of Christ we read in Isaiah chapter fifty two For thus saith Yahweh God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. This is an allusion to the captivities of Israel. And most of Israel was lost after the Assyrian captivity. And they were among the scattered Israelites whom Christ had come to reconcile. That Christ who came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Later on it is explained in Ezekiel chapter 34. That my sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock, in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered. So will I seek out my sheep, and I will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. So, Yahshua Christ came, for the same sheep that were scattered in ancient times and for none other. So continuing with that same chapter of Isaiah, the prophet continues in reference to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and he says, Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught they that rule over them, make them to howl, saith Yahweh. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. 
For they shall see eye to eye, when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. So here we see an explicit prophecy explaining that the purpose of the gospel of Christ was to reconcile the people who had been taken away to Yahweh their God. And in Matthew chapter 15, Christ himself professes that he came only for those people. The part of this that refers to Timothy is where it says to those scattered people, Thy watchmen, meaning that the messengers of the gospel would come from among them or be taken from among them as watchmen. Then later on, in yet another messianic prophecy, we read in Zechariah chapter 8 from verse 21, And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray for Yahweh, and to seek Yahweh of hosts, I will go also. Yeah, many people and strong nations shall come to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Judahite or Judean saying, We will go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. And this was, at least in part, fulfilled by Paul of Tarsus, a Judean, who found disciples to take up the ministry among the nations of scattered Israel. And those disciples went from one city to another, as it says here. In these same scattered children of Israel, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi 1.11 with the spread of the Christian gospel, where it says, For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, My name shall be great among the nations, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, saith Yahweh of hosts. Paul's commission was to be sent to distant nations, as it says in the prophets, and the Jews wanted to kill him for it. Paul had also told the Corinthians that their fathers were baptized with Moses in the cloud and the sea, meaning that they too were descendants of the ancient Israelites in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Timothy, being of a Greek father, very likely also would have been one of those descendants. Paul found Timothy in Lycaonia. Therefore, Timothy was one of the first individuals to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 8 
were the gospel meant for the blind and the prisoners, which are descriptions of ancient Israel in captivity, was to be accepted and spread abroad by men from those scattered nations of Israel who would cling to the Judean guided by God. A description fully applicable to Paul of Tarsus. The ten men in Zechariah 8.22 are representative of the ten tribes of the northern house of Israel. In John chapter 20 we read, Then saith he to Thomas, meaning Christ, said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered, and said unto him, My Lord and my God, that was Thomas's conclusion right there in a nutshell. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Timothy was among those who did not see and yet believed, as well as being one of the lost sheep, called out of blindness and in prison, one of the watchmen of the scattered nations, called into the glory of the light of Yahweh. So Paul offers him one final admonishment. You attend to these things, you must live by them, that your progress in that is evident to all. His progress, Timothy's progress in exercising his body for piety, which is exercising his body to be subject to the law. The Greek phrase and tautois isti here is literally you must be in them. That's what it means. You must be in them. But here it is rendered idiomatically as you must live by them. Paul is telling Timothy that he must live by all of the precepts which have been outlined thus far in this epistle and especially in the exercise of his body for piety for piety by subjecting himself to the law. Living in this manner, his righteousness would be manifest to all, and doing that, his teaching would have efficacy among men. That is how Christians become the shining light on a proverbial hill. This we read in the 43rd Psalm. Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For thou art the God of my strength. Why do thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me under thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy.
Yeah, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, or O Yahweh my God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in Yahweh, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Now Paul admonishes Timothy one last time in reference to the teaching. Be committed to yourself and to the teaching. Abide in them. For doing this, you will preserve both yourself and those listening to you. As the Apostle James also professed in chapter 5 of his only epistle, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Converting a sinner from the error of his way means to admonish the sinner according to the law and encourage him to keep the law, to exercise himself for piety by subjecting his body to the law of Yahweh. As we have recently said, in part 16 of our presentation of Clifton Emheiser's special notices to all who deny to seed line, this is what it means to be a Christian soldier. Putting on the armor of God, we put away the deeds of the flesh, overcoming in the struggle with our fleshly lusts and carnal desires, and only then are we fit for Yahweh in the battle against his enemies. As we have stated, the war which is prophesied in Genesis 3.15 is confirmed in the Revelation in chapters 12 and 20. To overcome our enemies, first we must overcome the lusts of our flesh. And we do that by exercising our bodies for piety, which is to conform ourselves to the laws of Yahweh our God. Without such piety, no matter how much physical exercise we do, we will only see defeat at the hands of our enemies. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I am not skilled to understand What God has willed, what God has planned
used to 